Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Geek Warning from the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang, and we're replacing our usual group show this week with a special Ask a Wrench episode where we take a whole bunch of gear-related questions exclusively from our Escape Collective members, and then we consult our hive mind for answers. Hopefully, we'll have good ones for you. Uh, joining me on the panel today is Escape Collective tech editor Dave Roman, Sydney, Australia. Hello, Dave. Hello. Uh, we also have pro mechanic Zach Edwards sitting right next to me here at, of the Boulder Groupetto joining us. Hi, Zach. Hello. And last, and certainly not least, we've got former UCI World Cup and internet-famous pro mechanic Brad Copeland here with us. Uh, Brad's now the service manager at Hush Money Bikes in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Brad, thanks for being with us again. Thanks for having me again. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to overcome your, uh, your computer issues. <laughs> it's always something. <laughs> uh, Dave, it's been a whopping... Uh, barely day or so since we're sort of double stacking some some podcast recordings here uh yeah. how many tools have you purchased in the last 24 hours uh last 24 hours actually none um i bought i bought yeah the last purchase was a week ago now so i think i'm doing quite well are you feeling well well no but uh that's <laughs> not the point um i mean I'm, I'm off to the u.s tomorrow so which is also why we're doing uh well, we've got this episode as opposed to the usual weekly show. We're recording this in advance. And I'm also in the US. And uh, yeah, I was just uh, saving a little bit of money so I can spend it there. Mm, okay. On a, mm. on, a whole bunch of, on a whole bunch of gluten-free scratch bars that I have waiting here for you now. Yes. Yes. Mm, okay. Those are good. Excellent. Excellent. And Zach, I've actually always been wanting to ask you, do you recall what is the most expensive bill you've ever had to serve to a customer here? Ooh. Uh... The one that stands out was a Pinarello Bolladay TT bike that was very all had all of the things you can do to a bicycle to make it more expensive. And do you know how much that bill was? I don't remember, but a lot. I mean, it was like the frame alone is fifteen, I think, if I remember. And we had lightweights and DI two and SRM and ceramic speed and did all of all did of they the elect things. for the coated ceramic speed or did they go like the the poor man ceramic speed without the coating? <laughs> oh, surely they, they went did without the coating to save a little bit of money. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was like custom painted frame and everything, so uh, it was okay. very very over the top. Dear God, yeah. All right then, that sounds like a that that's, sounds like a that's big one that stands out. Huh. All right then. Well, uh, okay. Well, <laughs> uh, well uh, before we start diving into questions, just a quick reminder that, again, all of these questions do come exclusively from our Escape Collective members. And everything that we do here is wholly funded by our members. So that means there's no ads, no sponsors, uh, you know, no confusion as to who we're doing all this for, which, to be clear, is all of you listening here. And if you haven't already done so, please consider signing up at escapecollective.com slash join and maybe become a member of our community because – I don't know. I kind of think we're a pretty decent bunch, I think. Sure. Uh, the Brad's, Brad's nodding deafening. in agreeance. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Thanks. I'll, Thanks for I'll, the support. I'll take it. I'll take it. All right. On with the questions. Let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, first one comes from Robert Barrows. Uh, Robert wants to know if there is a process for going from wax to regular lube. He's going the other way. He said he'll be deploying for six-ish months a year, and his wife is not interested in taking her chain off to put in the crock pot. Dave, I believe you are our chain waxing resident expert. What are you going to say here? I mean, the, the crock pot tells me that you're currently using melt-on wax, and uh, my advice would just be to go straight to a drip-on wax. Uh, there's plenty of good ones out there. Uh, Ceramic Speed do a great one. Uh, Silka, uh, even like Squirt is probably the most readily available. Uh, but yeah, there's there's quite a few great drip-on waxes which now almost replicate the benefits of melt-on wax. And that, to me, would be the, the obvious first choice because um, you've just put your wax in a bottle and you keep using it. The only catch is, is that stuff tends to need uh, quite a few hours to dry onto the chain. So some dry within a few hours, others require like overnight. But to me that that would be where i'd go um uh but yeah like uh, if you did want to say go to an oil-based wax you just you'd basically just uh pour boiling water over the chain over the melt like the hot melt wax chain and that would strip out the wax and you can straight away just put an oil over the top of it um brad any thoughts on that well i'm i'm a diehard user of the ufo drip the ceramic speed loop anyway um so i would i would just echo basically what you said it might take one or two applications to sort of flush the old and fully coat with the new, but that shouldn't actually affect the 
performance if you're not measuring it on some kind of device that's uh, telling you the fractions of a watt that you're saving <laughs> or not. So yeah, I would I would just stick to a dry lubes um, unless you want to just go through a full stripping process. And I actually like that technique, Dave, that you described using boiling hot water. That's a mm. that's a good one, a simple one. Sometimes that's the best way. Simple yeah. and water based. Yes, and and it sounds like easy is definitely the goal here. Um, yes. But uh, D- Dave, in regards to your comment about how long different uh, wax-based lubes take to dry, mm-hmm. uh, what I usually recommend, and this is sometimes kind of a hard habit for people to get into, but um, I usually recommend that people use a wax drip lube or get in the habit of using a wax drip lube at the end of a ride after you get home, um, just yeah. so that it's ready to go when you need to ride the next time. It's just just be done with it. Then you don't have to worry about it if it's dry or not. Yeah. Or do what I do and just have too many bikes. And then when you forget <laughs> to lube your chain, you just the loop it and then grab a different bike. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there there is that solution as well. All right. Well, Robert, thanks for your question. Uh, next one, This the way I bundled these, I've kind of sorted some of these in, in groups here. Um, this, this one comes from Dr. Tallrider. Sorry, I don't have Dr. Tallrider's name. Uh, I do know that Dr. Tallrider is in Northern California. Uh, it says my wife's and my commute bikes are both waxed chains. And I'm wondering if I could alternate squirt applications with pot wax. And I think we kind of just answered that. And the answer would be yes. Um, mm. can I, can sort I, of. sort of, can I clarify? Like squirt's probably not the best, <clears throat> the best lube to be putting into your pot wax. Cause it's very high on like, um, I believe it's mineral oil, but yeah, it's, it's very hot. It's, it's, it's oily as far as, uh, wax chain lubes go so it's it's there's better ones that will uh degrade your wax less so again ceramic speed silk is very good in that regard um rex does one uh yeah uh, but yeah the, the squirt will work but it's just it's not the best option because it's quite gummy yeah and my my experience i i do like squirt and like you said dave it is generally the most readily available out of any of the wax lubes lubes that are out right now maybe because they've been around longer um but it does tend to build up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I do like about it, however, is I do find that wax, uh, uh, I do find that chains that are treated with squirt uh, wax lube kind of tend to run quieter because it is a little bit gummier. Mm. Um, so I feel like it, for people who maybe are okay mm. with doing a little bit more, you know, somewhat more frequent cleaning or are willing to kind of just wipe things down a little bit more often. Um, yeah, it's a little bit, little bit gummier, uh, maybe gets a little bit dirtier as well, but also runs quieter. So it kind of depends on what you're looking for. If you're okay with, I don't know, like not saving every last watt, then uh, I think squirt's probably not a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, I like Smooth, which is the the other South African wax chain lube, uh, which kind of came after squirt. Um, but yeah, it's, it's even harder to find. Um, but yeah, I, I have... It's readily available in Australia, so that's that's my preference. It's just a little bit. Uh, I just find it a little bit cleaner running, a little bit smoother than than squirt. Do a you bit uh, sm- smoother, smoother? <laughs> yes, yes. Do you, Thank uh, you, Brad. Do you do you think the smooth and squirt people are friends? I I would say not is is my assumption. I I think yeah they they probably don't uh, don't go to the same parties is my guess. <laughs> All right, our next round of questions. Actually, I've got three questions here from member Bernie Langer in Pennsylvania. Uh, we're going to address all three of these, Bernie. Uh, first one, I'm really curious to hear your takes on this. Uh, Bernie wants to know if you put greasy rags in the laundry. Uh, he said he's kind of treated rags that touch the drivetrain as the equivalent of nuclear waste. But he's wondering if maybe they won't forever irradiate his washing machine. What, what, what do you all do? I mean, I wouldn't do that in my own washing machine. Yeah, not my own. I yeah. I have a a teenage Dave quip on this is um <laughs> my my parents had gone on holiday and left me to to the house and I thought that was the perfect opportunity to wash all my rags. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and I can tell you that uh it doesn't do well to the washing machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there were there were grease marks on many clothes for for many washes after that. <laughs> so yeah don't do that oh, yeah. I, I can only imagine the conversation that happened in that household yeah well thankfully <laughs> i worked it i worked out what i'd done before they got back so i was like i was busy washing out the, the washing machine but yeah i think i ruined a towel or something trying to I'm sure. trying to fix nice, it nice nice um, uh well so, yeah did the, did the rags come out clean 
What's that? No, not to- even. Uh, <laughs> much, I, I was able to reuse them, but I was I was so stressed about uh, what I'd done that uh, yeah, I, I can't remember what I did with the rags. I think <laughs> so I might have I- used the rags to clean the washing machine. <laughs> I, I will say that I have done this, and I've done this fairly recently too, but not necessarily with greasy rags. So greasy rags always go, in, go into the trash, uh, definitely not in like a sealed container sort of thing because I don't really want things to catch on fire. Um, but actually, I can't remember now. Is it supposed to go in a sealed container or not sealed container? I mean, if it's sealed, it's not going to catch on fire because there's no air. True. There is something about like grease-soaked rags that like yeah. can spontaneously combust though. Anyway, there I don't is. ever have enough that I have to worry about that. Anyway, point being, I have done that before. Um, but anything that's super greasy or oily, I just just throw those away. Um, I do, however, wash rags that are just kind of like grimy. Um, so those I don't really find to be that big of a deal. But I maybe put in a little bit ex- extra detergent, and I don't wash them with whites. So, all right. Well, that one's settled. Uh, next one from Bernie. Uh, it's sort of related, kind of. Um, Bernie wants to know how many uses can you get out of a pack of Silco hot wax? I feel like these all seem like chain waxing questions for Dave. Mm. Well, I'm kind of, I intentionally bundled some of these together just so we can kind of get them out of the way. It's for Dave to wax mm. philosophical. You see yeah. what I did? Oh, <laughs> mm. oh, good. Brad, Very good, you, Brad, you and Dave are cut from yeah. a similar cloth nice. here. Uh, nice. I know. <laughs> uh, the hot melt, it's it's tough. I don't know what Silker officially recommends, but basically you can, uh, yeah, they normally give like a rough distance. I think it's like ten to 15,000 K of of repeated use. Uh, for me, it's, it's I, I would say when the wax starts to look dirty when you stir it up, when there's any kind of uh, contamination, then I would, I would be looking to replace that part of wax. Um, yeah, that's, that's my go. Or, you know, along the way, if you've overheated it or sort of yellow as well, and then that's a sign you've kind of cooked it, so to speak. So I'd also replace it at that point. I guess the way that I've always treated hot wax is, uh, yes, Dave, as long as you meant, as you mentioned, as long as it's not been overheated or too dirty, I basically use it until it's pretty much gone. Um, which you can put a chain in there an awful lot and like it, a chain really just turns out it doesn't absorb that much wax per treatment. So a, a bag of wax goes a pretty long way. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that I want to remind people of is like you get that huge bag of wax and the natural thing is to just dump the whole thing into the crock pot. Um, one thing you could do is just not dump all of it in. So make sure it's nice and mixed, uh, nice and thoroughly and kind of evenly mixed uh, in the bag. And then just pour in maybe even like a quarter or half of it, basically just as much as you need to immerse the whole chain and then run it like that. Because then at that point, if you do get a batch dirty, you don't contaminate like the entire batch all at once. Mm. Yeah, like uh, that would definitely depend on the crock pot you're using and whether you can submerge a chain in that little, that small amount of wax. But yeah, it's definitely a an option. And, and if you can do that, then it would obviously be quicker to heat up as well. So it's got a benefit yep. there too. Uh, totally totally uh last question from bernie and yes this is going to be i think our last chain waxing question uh <laughs> if you rewax your chain with hot melt each time doesn't that just wear out your quick link so is drip wax a better technique for topping off oh this is an easy one dave i'm gonna go ahead and hand you toss you this softball here uh well yeah your quick link definitely wears out so um they're not infinitely replaceable uh sram and shimano for all of their quick links from 11 speed or 10 speed and up um, actually say they're not reusable at all officially. So uh, yeah, um, and Brad's Brad's nodding. I know Brad wouldn't reuse. And smiling. Yeah, yeah. So I know I know Brad wouldn't reuse a quick link in a race situation. He would, not he would race. never yeah. think about it. Yeah, but uh, um, I would I would any other time though. Yeah, and on like honest. a personal bike. So. Um, but yeah, normally you'd you'd reuse them up until the point where they no longer like make that snap when you join them. So um, at that point, they're they're worn out. Uh, so yeah, uh, that suddenly factors into it with like twelve speed links being so expensive these days and being uh, you only get two or three uses out of them before that snap goes away. So for me personally, like on my mountain bike, which is using twelve speed XTR, um, I actually do just use a, a drip lube for that reason. Um, I, I'm just using like ceramic speed UFO. And uh, it it works very well, and uh, yeah, saves quick links. All right, enough with the chain waxing questions. The next question comes from David Savage in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, David wants to know. Pictures. 
Mm-hmm. Said Hoosiers. Right. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Uh, which fully internal cable routing system, either a widely used one like FSAs or a manufacturer-specific one, is the easiest to work on these days? I mean, I would say it def- depends what your definition of easy is. Is it like easy to install the first time or easy to make adjustments with down the road? Like, what are we talking easy? Yes. All of it. <laughs> I mean, I would say not the FSA one that he called out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what would you what would you want on your own bike? Like, what if you were to pick a bike, which one would you be picking based on? on I, those? I mean, I would say I like the Specialized one the most, where they run, and a couple other companies like BMC did it for a bit. Um, but basically, where they run the brake hoses underneath the stem, and then either into the bar if it's internally routed, or just taped next to the bar um, if you're running a normal like round handlebar, um, because that you can adjust the stem up and down, you can take it off to travel. You can change stem links within reason of brake hose lengths. Um, I would say, yeah, that's the most, like that style is the most user-friendly. Yeah, I mean, they did, like if you get the latest S-Works with the, the repeat cockpit, that's I now. installed one of those today. Yeah, that's through the stem, right, now? That's no, it's, that it goes it underneath. Oh. It goes under and then into the bar, which I thought was really nice. Because usually oh, it's like okay. you're shoving it through a tiny hole in the back from the yeah. steer. And then you're like trying to make the brake hose do a 90 degree bend in the bar, which is somewhere where you can't access and then try and fish it out at the other end where the rapide bar, it goes in kind of, yeah, similar to how it was before where it goes along mm-hmm. underneath the stem and then into a hole and was yeah. very effortless to install. The, the other thing I'd say with that Specialized, I just, I, I just built an SL8 with the, the old rapide handlebar and SL7 stem. Um, the the routing through the handlebar is really nice, like really nice, smooth uh, entry and exit points for the hoses. You know, yeah, it's just like a like, made well bar. It's yeah. not full of bladder material and yeah, yeah, and the the like the, the yeah those exit points are like actually manageable. You can actually get tools in there and yeah, you know, like a pick in there and grab the hose. It's quite nice. I feel like generally speaking, we can probably all agree that the ones that are easiest to either build or work on are the ones. Uh, where the lines don't go through the steerer, um, so they don't go like up through the middle of the fork, um, and they don't run through the stem. Uh, usually, like, we, I think we probably all prefer that they run on the underside of the stem. Um, and then I generally prefer that the hose runs externally on the bar uh, underneath tape, although that's not very common with with arrow type bars. So that's that's kind of a hit or miss sort of thing. Yeah, like the Trek is the only one really that yep. is external with an arrow bar. Yep which is why I like it. Yeah, that was like that one is nice, but it's also really particular to hose, hose length. length. So you mm-hmm. can't leave a lot of excess for, I don't know, future having to take things apart and put it back together. Well, clearly what you need are like stretchable hoses. Oh, wait, that's not going to work. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, David, that's our answer for, for that. Hopefully that gives you some info. So it's not like necessarily super specific as far as like manufacturers or or brands that sort of thing but hopefully that's pretty helpful uh next question comes from carl seacrest here in boulder actually uh what's your favorite tool to crimp cable tips with uh dave I'm, i know your answer no i'm looking one. at i'm looking at brad because he <laughs> him and his friend uh greg thomas uh yes. inspired a purchase of mine so brad so uh yeah this is again it's one of those questions of is it worth it which it's something we probably all ask ourselves frequently when it comes to buying tools. But um, my friend Greg Thomas, a uh, guy I worked with for a number of years, and it's one of my close contacts, still uh, found a tool called a ring a ring marking plier. It's a jeweler's tool, which you um, use. It's basically a plier that you stamp something of your choosing into soft metal. Um, so we got our, and this was a wedding present he gave to me for my wedding because uh, we joked about it for years, but never ponied up and actually bought it because it costs like $300. <laughs> but it's mostly, it's mostly the insert that costs a lot of money to make, but it's my name, Brad, B-R-A-D. Um, if you have a very long name, this might not work as well for you, but if you have a few letters like Dave or Brad um, or Greg, you'll notice only four letters works well, and you can um, have a tool made where it crimps your name into the cable tip. So it's uh, something I don't use on every bike, so I don't want to wear it out on, you know, mid-level uh bikes that are not so significant <laughs> before special builds race bikes my own bikes and fancy things i i will claim it with my own cable tip although 
nowadays it's getting fewer and farther between when a bike of that level even has a cable in the first place. So lockout levers were about the last places we had mechanical cables with cable tips anymore. So I, yeah, so Brad, you might as well just use it all the time. Like what do you have I to might lose as well, at this point, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, what what if what if Carl is on kind of a more realistic budget and doesn't necessarily want to put his but he's name got, on he's stuff? He's got a short but name. It's a four-letter name, right? It is C-A-R-L. a four-letter name. C-A-R-L. <laughs> okay, yeah. uh, mine, mine actually says Rome, but uh, oh, yeah. yeah. That works yeah. too. Um, but yeah, I, I've actually quite... I used to always use a, a blunt pair of uh, diagonal cutters and you just like do like three lines across. I know some people put like, you know, arrows or something, crimp an arrow in. Um, that's a really good tool because you can get it in at awkward angles. Um, but I've actually quite taken to liking the new dedicated crimping tool from Park Tool lately, which is, is somewhat of like a generic crimping tool, but it's, uh, I like it because you can get, you can crimp either from the side of the plier or from like the straight on from the tips. And it means you can get in like in into uh, like Shimano GRX or, or road derailers where you kind of need to get behind the derailleur between the wheel and the derailleur cage. Um, and it, yeah, it's just a, a very convenient way to, to access um, the cable without having to like take out a wheel or anything like that. So uh, that's my preference. Mm. Zach? I mean, I similar to Dave have a, like use a pair of dull like side cuts. Um, if they're sharp, sometimes you can go straight through it. Um, I, yeah, I prefer those. I just think it looks a little bit cleaner with just a nice line rather than some of the the tools that are made to cut it where it kind of flattens the whole thing. It just looks like it's came out of the factory in Asia and has a six inch long cable <laughs> is what that always reminds me of. So I don't like yeah. that. Um, <laughs> I would say I also always really prefer because there's usually a, shift and a brake cable tip for different sizes. I like to use the shift ones on everything because they're just because they fit much much out. tidier rather than the like the big bulky brake ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, same. Um I I will add that there is a very fancy Deutsch crimping plier out which is used by electricians which actually crimps 360 degree circles around the the crimp. Ooh. Um, and it'll do like multiple lines at once. So you get like three perfect 360 degree circles around. Uh, I have played with them. I, I own a <laughs> cheap one from AliExpress. Uh, it is so bulky that you basically have to disassemble the bike in order to use it. <laughs> so it's, sounds, it's just not kind of practical. <laughs> Which is exactly exactly why you have it, Dave. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, I think uh, I think we've answered that question more or less, and certainly with a bunch of suggestions that you shouldn't follow, Carl. Um, all right, next question. It's another tool question here. Uh, this one comes from Sam. I apologize, I don't have Sam's last name, but Sam is in the market for a housing cutter for their personal toolbox. They've got a Knipex cutter sitting in their Amazon save for later uh, list. Uh, Sam also has the Jaguar Pro cutter in their bench at work, and they're pretty satisfied with it, apparently. Uh, Sam is also eyeing up the Hosan cutter, and they're having trouble making a decision. What do we have for opinions and recommendations? Brad? (laughs) I have some opinions. Uh, So my favorite, one of my favorite tools ever in the first housing cutter that I loved was from Felco. Um, I'm sure we've probably seen them in shops. Most of those of us on the call right now, Um, those things are good for brake housing and shift housing. They're super high quality and last forever. Um, I did just get the wire rope cutter from Knipex uh, Mm -hmm. about two years ago. And I kept that one in my travel box. And that thing is also super good. It's kind of only for shift housing um, specifically, but it works incredibly well as do most Knipex products in general. So I would, I would go with one of those two. So I'd, I'd like to toss in a, 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 maybe an outlier suggestion here, Dave. I know you're, I know you've heard this before, but I am still a huge fan of my six-inch Kinepex uh, bolt cutters. Uh, there were you a going away up. present from I know I know there, there were a going away present from from one of the first shops I worked at in Michigan. Um, they are definitely not specific to anything, but. Uh, they are so old that they were actually made in West Germany, not Germany. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, they are vintage at this point, but they are still cool. so sharp. I can cut a, I can cut paper with them. Um, mm-hmm. But I actually use them for brake housing, derailleur housing, and crimping cables and inner cables. Uh, I've actually used them to cut chain, um, and it works for all that stuff. And I don't need like nine different tools. 
You might not you need probably, them, but you, you probably should use it for a hammer things. too. It, I could probably them. use it for a hammer. It's if, like the if gravel bike of cable cutters. It is maybe, but maybe, but 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 it brings me so much joy, Zach. Mm. James James just mentioned not needing nine different tools, almost like it was a benefit. I don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> know your audience, James. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I I personally so. Gnipex uh, use they have various different like Bowden cable cutters which which Brad uh, mentioned before. Um, there's like three different models, and I personally use two different models on my uh, in my little workshop. Uh, one for inner cables, one for housing because uh, the the jaw shapes are different, and they do a specific one for like inner wire that doesn't fray the inner wire as much because it's got like a more circular jaw. In that sense, it's probably a bit more like the Felco cutter. Um, but yeah, for the travel box, I just have one pair of, um, Nipex's new applier, which I, I happen to have just brought up the, the model number four, which is a nine, five, six, two, one sixty for anyone playing at home. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Of course you have that model number. Um, mm-hmm. this, uh, next question, actually, this is another one from Carl in Boulder. Um, actually kind of is is nice little nice little segue from what I was mentioning with those Knipex bolt cutters. Uh, Carl wants to know how many tools do we use that have been repurposed from obsolete equipment. So the big one that comes to mind is toe straps. Anyone? Anyone? I mean, toe straps are great. But They're pretty amazing. Like, probably the most common, like in every bike shop, is people using spokes for various other things. I, this is an example of something that I reuse. That's not necessarily for bike use per, uh, per se, but uh, one thing I have found really handy is uh, an old section of uh, cable and housing for uh, like unclogging drains. Like it's, you know how I'm sure all of us have, have pricked our finger on like a little strand of inner wire and like, it, and for some reason it's so painful. Um, but if you take one of those wires and like intentionally kind of like curl up the ends and kind of like you know, undo all the strands up there and hook them and, and kind of just curl them out. Uh, it is amazing for pulling hair out of drains. Like the best thing ever. Hmm. Good tip. Uh, on the topic of reusing old uh, redundant components, uh, I saw one on Instagram. Normally, like the the hacks on Instagram are just like just hilarious and good for a laugh. Um, but this one actually had me intrigued, which was to use. They basically got a an old handlebar and a quill stem, and they you put the quill stem into like uh, the seat post was stuck in the bike. And the, Ooh, the, oh, yeah. the head, like the clamp of the, the topper of the, the seat post had fallen off or maybe they'd cut it off and they used the quill stem and they like, they bolted it into, expanded it into the seat post and were able to pull the seat post out. Wow. That's a that's good kind of idea. A, yeah. I like that one. Yeah. So you got like the leverage of the handlebars. So that's one I, I might, uh, I might try do myself at some point. Huh. That seems like a good reason to take an old bike and just leave it submerged in the ocean somewhere for a while. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, next tool question. Uh, this is another one. I, I don't have uh, the person's name. Uh, this one comes from Escape Collective member W. Denman. So, sorry, don't know your name. Um, but they help run the on-campus community bike lab that allows students to repair bikes with the help of others. They start, they've started getting disc brakes for repair now, and most of the bikes are big box store bikes that uh, they attempt to service in a safe way. And they're curious what tools they should buy for the shop. Uh, they know they need tools for SRAM and Shimano, uh, but they're also curious if there's one that does both. And he's talking about uh, brakes here, disc brakes. Uh, they have bleed kits that have been donated, looking for something that isn't too expensive because tools seem to walk off, but they can, that can also survive light shop use. Uh, they're hoping that they can find something that would work on a wide range of brakes, but of the cheaper variety. Hmm. And yeah, probably not really any need to work on any of the high-end stuff. So um Dave, I know that there are kind of universal brake bleed kits that are out there, but I don't really I'm not familiar with what sort of with what sort of fittings they might include for stuff like, I don't know, like Pro Max and Tektro and stuff like that. Yeah, the good universal kits come with come with it all. because uh, there's not that much variance in in the threads, like the thread fitments between those brakes. Like, you know, a lot of a lot of those brakes are from the same manufacturer, even if the brand name's different on them. Uh, where you can't overlap though is that just that you got to be really careful with the dot fluid versus mineral oil and and not to cross contaminate there. So I'd I'd really recommend two separate universal kits, just so you there's no risk of um of contaminating the brakes because 
yeah, you definitely don't want to accidentally put the wrong fluid, even even small amounts, the wrong fluid in in the wrong brake because that'll quickly ruin the brake. So, um, but yeah, like there's you know Park Tool and Jaguar have very high end universal kits, but uh, yeah, the internet's full of of more. You know, BleeKit.com, for example, do quite good value universal kits, which uh, would be up for occasional use in in this sort of environment. So, yeah, you don't have to spend a huge amount to get a universal kit that could do it all. Hmm, bleedkit.com. I'll have to check that out. Brad, any any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the same um, about Jaguar, and I think Finish Line may also do one. Um, I have to review whether that's accurate. I know Jaguar does, though, and they have one with like um, different fittings for, for example, Magura or TRP, um, Tektro, and then obviously the Shimano and SRAM fittings and the little tips that make it fit one or the other thread onto sort of a universal syringe type uh, apparatus. It looks basically just like a SRAM one for the most part. Um, and then you just screw on the tip that you need to fit into whichever brake brand you're working on. So I would echo again, be really careful to clean them super thoroughly or get to if you're going back and forth between dot and mineral. But um, yeah, otherwise I found that to be a pretty handy thing. That's what we have in our shop. And uh, we only do, you know, occasional things that aren't SRAM or Shimano, I'm sure, like most of us, that's primarily what we see. And so um, that's like a handy one that just kind of takes care of those oddball breaks that we don't see every day. Hmm. All right. Sounds good. Interesting. Uh, sticking with the topic of breaks, this one, this question comes from Al Boflick. Uh, is betting in new Shimano metallic disc brake pads on an Altegra brake still a thing these days? Uh because Al feels like there's not really a huge difference if you do it or don't do it and just go ahead and start riding because it seems like they'll bite pretty well. Ex- uh, it seems like they'll bite pretty well anyway. What do we think about this? Uh, for me, I'm a, I still like to do a, at least a cursory bed and uh, process on new bikes at the shop. You don't necessarily need to go to the T on the manufacturer spec and do 30 heart, you know, 30 stops and do it like that. But what I find especially useful in terms of bedding in a, a new brake and a new brake rotor is not, is to do like some even consistent stops where you're not like hard on the brake like you would be if you're coming to a kind of emergency stop or even a stop at like a intersection um, just so you get that initial bedding kind of nice and consistent and even uh, as you have a little bit of pad material exchange between the rotor and the and the pads and so once you do that that way you kind of avoid that pulsy brake feeling which you can sometimes get if you just start with new stuff and just kind of ride them in whatever conditions you're riding them in. Yeah, this this question's interesting because it, it might be from the point of view of just replacing pads and not the rotor. So you at that mm-hmm. point, you're using a rotor that already has that material deposit onto it. So all you're then having to do is sort of get that initial s- surface right on the pads. So that might be why you're experiencing, uh, why you don't think it makes a difference, like, you know, why riding's just producing the same results for you. But yeah, certainly... If it's a new new rotor, then you basically want to repeat the whole bed-in process that Brad just described. So I guess, long answer short, uh, the brakes will still work if you don't do a proper bed-in, but they'll probably work better if you do. So it doesn't take a whole lot of time. Uh, so I think we'd still recommend doing a, a proper bed-in process. Um, sure would be nice if, like, maybe we should go ahead and put together like an article on how to bed in brakes, huh? What do you think, Dave, mm. Dave, Dave, what do you think? Mm. Uh, I have like a thousand words from Brad alone on, <laughs> on this already. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, let, it's probably, hopefully I'm, I'm not sleeping on the plane and I can actually finally finish this article. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can get a hold of the flight attendants on that flight and just have them plaster you with coffee for the whole flight. Yeah. Yeah. So Excellent. Mm. All right, next question. Um, this one comes from Marty. Uh, again, I don't know their full name. This is just what their handle was on the Discord channel here. Uh, but they're trying to install a dropper post on a 2021 Orbea Alma. Uh, and routing the cable housing is proving harder than expected. The head tube cable port's very tight and only barely fits the housing. Uh, and any magnets that they have in their routing kit don't really fit. Uh, and then without using magnets and trying to fish out the bare housing from the seat tube seems pretty hard too. He said there's a little hole at the bottom bracket area. They tried sticking an Allen key in there to push the housing toward the seat tube, but it's too small to do anything useful from there. And they're wondering, unless they're missing something, is taking the bottom bracket out the only option left, which would be kind of annoying since it's press fit and the bike's almost new. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and grab this one here, having done this a whole bunch of times on a bunch of different bikes. 
in that sort of situation, I, I would have to say that removing the bottom bracket, as much as it seems like a pain in the butt, it is the most surefire way to just get it done and have it be over with. Because otherwise, it sounds like you're going through a fair bit of frustration already. And I would say that assuming you have the correct tools to remove and reinstall that press fit bottom bracket, um, it probably would be quicker to just go ahead and do that and kind of like get your fingers in there and guide it back up into the C-tube and then just be done with it. Brad, any thoughts here? Yeah, I I would tend to agree um, having done it the other way where I'm like, ah, surely I can just... <laughs> somehow do this without taking everything apart. Usually it would have been a lot faster if I just took it apart. Um, if it's possible, sometimes you can feed a cable, just a, a bare inner cable um, through the frame and use that to then kind of guide the housing. Um, that would be my my only other suggestion. What I'll often do is like kink the cable itself. So when you stick it into the housing, it's got some like expansion kind of tension from within the housing so you can kind of have something to pull against before you just pull the cable right out. Um, maybe a little careful bending if you can kind of figure the length out where it kind of hits the curve underneath the BB. Maybe put a little curve in the housing as well to help it make that turn and not snag an edge. But to James' point, more than likely, you'll wish you just took the BB out in the first place. <laughs> yeah, almost always easier just to take it out. Yeah. yeah, and and just be thankful it's on an e-bike where you're having to take yeah. the motor oh, out. Oh my god, yes! <laughs> and then yes. You, and then you crimp it somehow in the motor when you put it back together. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the joy, the, the joys of modern bike mechanics yes. stuff. Um, yes. All right, this one, this next question comes from John Chenier in Everett, Washington. Uh, John's having a whole bunch of trouble keeping their headset properly tightened. They can't figure out the issue. Uh, John built up the bike himself. Uh, it's a chapter two rare, uh, just so we know. Uh, so he worry he's worried that it's his own fault. It's carbon frame and steer, normal bearings and everything. So the bike came with an expansion plug. That's maybe an inch long. that sits on top of the steerer. He's got all the bearings and fork all in place correctly. He put the stem and spacers on, uh, he's got the expander plug in there with some carbon grip paste. It's all tightened to spec installed the top. Uh, he's inst- installed the top cap snugly without affecting the fork rotation and then tightened the stem bolts to spec. It's fine, basically, when he's working on it, but then it develops a little play within a few long rides. Um, he, I did check with him, just to first a li- little bit of extra clarification here. He has ridden it, uh, he said, pre- briefly slash occasionally with a loose headset. Um, but he says that there's no sign of a ring of death, as far as he can tell, and he's checking regularly. This is an interesting one. So basically, his headset keeps coming loose. What do we think here? Zach? I mean, that sounds like the steer tube is like right at that length where it, feels like it's tight and then you get some weight on the bike and it all kind of settles in and it's not actually tight it's like the steer tube my guess probably needs cut i don't know one or two millimeters or or a spacer added or yeah or put a spacer on if the stem allows you that was also my hunch was that you know sometimes if you cut it especially if you cut it measuring without the compression plug in the steer then you add that plug you add another mill or so to the top of the steer tube and then that like if there's a little bulge or something underneath where the bolt sits on the top cap of the stem sometimes that's enough where it can just make contact and it gives you the essence of preload and like it feels normal in the shop and you go ride it and things kind of shake into place and you're back to that loose feeling that would be my speculation Mm, that's a good one what if uh what if we assume that the steer tube is not slightly too long and he does not need any extra spacers and it's still coming loose? Do we have any recommendations there? Because I'm, I'm glad he mentioned that he does not have the little ring of death thing there because that would have been my first thought. Um, but uh, he did mention that he's basically just tightening the preload bolt, preload bolt so that there he doesn't feel any play. But should he tighten it any more than that? Uh well, I would make sure that first that maybe just for, as a test, like what Dave said, just put a spacer above it just to give you that gap so you know that there's some gap there um, so that there's definitely no bottom-out contact from the top cap of, you know, in the in the compression plug or the top of the sear or whatever the case. Um, just test it like that, you know, just put a 5 mil spacer or something up there and see if that fixes mm-hmm. it. Otherwise, I would maybe say try a different compression plug just to, as a... To eliminate that variable. Yeah, I've seen too where like if the compression plug isn't fully tightened, it'll feel like you're tightening the headset, but instead of actually compressing the headset, it just pulls the plug up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess on the topic of uh, needing a, potentially needing a headset, uh, one thing that's kind of funny is it might seem like you have a steer tube cut to the right length and leaving enough gap between the top of the steer, even with the plug and the top of the stem. Um, but depending on how that top cap 
is shaped on the underside, sometimes you actually need a little bit more room than you think you do, especially if the inner diameter of that plug is kind of small, then it can interfere with the underside of the top cap more than you might think. So uh, adding a spacer is definitely a, a very easy and safe way to go just to find out what's going on. Yeah, and then uh, and then in really extreme cases, I'd say, uh, like if you've done all of that, then in extreme cases, you start to look at things like whether the, the bearing surfaces are uh, a square and and appropriate and it gets pretty complicated pretty quick and at that point i'd probably be dealing with the manufacturer rather than trying to chase it um but yeah gotcha there was a there was an interesting uh scenario with scott frames where the provided bb uh the headset bearing was a little bit undersized relative to the upper bearing seat in the frame um so no matter what it would develop some jiggly feelings eventually and uh some guys were telling me they were using rim tape like uh tubeless rim tape just one single strip around the sort of outer diameter of the bearing I'm not saying you should but i'm saying maybe you could <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah to dave's point i would say the the only if these things don't fix it it may be an intolerance in the manufacturing uh, John, I hope that answers your question. Uh, and if you wouldn't mind, maybe follow up with us on the Discord channel and let us know what you found out here. So we'd be happy to continue to walk you through this if need be. Uh, next question comes from Mark Rogers in Alexandria, Virginia. Mark's the original owner of a 2003 Le Mans Victoire. Ooh. He said it's about at about 16 years and 55,000 miles. He started worrying about the fork. Maybe as you should, Mark. That's a long time. Uh, he thinks it's the same one that came with uh, the Le Mans Jean that I have is a bond trigger race light carbon. His fork's got a bonded aluminum steer, bonded dropout, uh, carbon legs. He's finding no good advice on the durability and aging of the bonds. And just as COVID was arriving, he replaced the fork with an Envy road fork. Got two questions. He said, is he unjustly concerned about the bonds as there are no signs of weakness or looseness? And he can he safely trust that fork? And then two, he said the NV manual sets the maximum distance from the top of the headset bearing to the bottom of the stem clamp at 40 millimeters. Um, he said, what do we think about this? And he said his stem is actually less at less than the 40 millimeter max. So it's kind of more of an academic question. So, hmm. Uh, I'm going to address the second question first. Uh, I would just say that there are an awful lot of variables that come along with uh, some of those manufacturer recommendations. So, um, I'm not sure we can actually answer that. Um, I'm, I'm not even saying this from like a liability standpoint or anything like that. I'm just I'm not sure we can answer that like accurately. Uh, I can I can tell you why they suggest that though, which is it's the it's to do with the length of unsupported steerer. So uh, like the stem clamp kind of adds some reinforcement, and then the headset bearing and the head tube adds uh, some support to the steerer. So, but those spaces are basically just like a, a hollow tube generally with like no support to the steerer. So the manufacturers try to limit that amount um, because it does create a, a, a zone that could, uh, yeah, like a high leverage zone that could cause steerer failure from. So it is, it is good to follow the advice of, of the fork manufacturers and the bike manufacturers in that regard. Cause uh, often they've done the testing and they sort of know the, the safe limits of those products. Yeah, and, and it probably has a little to do with the depth of the compression plug in use too, which would support about 40 mils of steer inside. And beyond that, you have kind of like a stress point where there's a lot of forces being applied there. So yeah. it's maybe not something you want to test and find out you went you went too long because uh, consequences are dire. Yeah. <laughs> As someone who has gone through the entire process of dental implant surgery, I would yes. not advise testing the theory. Um, yes. to, to address the first part of the question, though, um, I bought that frame yeah. used, and that fork actually uh, was cut too sure. short, so I actually never wrote it. Um, but uh, I actually ended up replacing my fork straight away with uh, a Reynolds Uzo Pro that uh, I thankfully got from Matt Phillips at Bicycling Magazine. He had one that was virtually unused that had the same uh, had the correct dimensions and rake and everything. So thank you, Matt. Um, I, I don't think your I don't think your concerns are unwarranted. Um, I would certainly bikes of that generation that were made with 
bonded aluminum and carbon components maybe aren't always the most reliable, especially over that period of time. And who knows what it's been exposed to in terms of weather and moisture and that sort of thing. Um, usually if you see some signs of, usually if there is some galvanic corrosion, you'll see some like bubbling in the clear coat around the joint. Um, but even if you don't see that, I, I it's the sort of thing where I would just play it safe. Um, if you are concerned about it, if you're worried about it, even if you didn't see any signs that anything was happening, I would imagine you, I, I would anyway, just sort of feel better riding the thing, just not having that sitting in the back of my mind. So you already got an MV fork. I would just leave it on there and call it good. My, my only added thought to that is, um, that fork is an aluminum steerer and, uh, metal doesn't have an infinite lifespan. So I'd probably be more worried about the like the aluminium steerer fatiguing than I would about the bonds between the carbon and the aluminium. So that alone would be cause to replace it after that sort of distance. Uh, yeah, and also that NV fork is going to be a heaps lighter than that original Bontrager race light. Um, and I will say from experience, certainly at least you know the first time I owned that bike originally when it was new, um, the NV fork would ride a lot better. So that Victoire, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice. TIG welded, uh, if I remember correctly, it's a Reynolds titanium frame um, and rides very nicely. And that Envy Fork should be nothing but an improvement over the original. So, yeah, I would just run what you got and be happy with it and just maybe keep the old one as a, as a souvenir. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, this is an interesting question. Um, this one comes from Mark Lynn in Sydney. Uh, Mark had their mechanic fit a SRAM GXP BB86 bottom bracket to their giant TCR the other day to fit some force axis cranks. Um, he said the mechanic told him that those things are notoriously stiff to start out and will loosen up after some riding. However, under any load whatsoever, the thing creaks and cracks along like crazy. Mark is wondering if this is normal or will it gradually go away as the bottom bracket is worn in. He's only ridden about 20K on it so far, and he's almost too embarrassed to ride anymore because it's so noisy. Uh, Mark actually did post a little video clip of this thing, and I can confirm that it is very loud and clicky and noisy. And uh, th this might sound a little bit harsh, Mark, but I would find a new mechanic because – there is absolutely no good reason whatsoever that that bottom bracket shouldn't be running pretty smoothly straight away. So uh, I'm not saying that there isn't maybe something wrong with that bottom bracket or maybe even potentially your frame, depending on the, the bottom bracket dimensions, uh, as for, uh, the shell anyway. Um, but that bike shouldn't have gotten back to you like that. It wasn't me yeah. for the record. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be really funny if it was. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, if it's creaking already from the get go, like that's not just going to go away over time. No, and it's not just creaking; it's like loud ticking, and it's barely spinning. Like th there's something wrong there. Something happened during that installation that was incorrect. So I would, I would go straight back to that shop and be like, "No, this is not how it's supposed to be," and fix it. Yeah, there, <laughs> there is the a slight amount of truth to what was said, which is bottom brackets do wear in, like the seals do break in and the grease loosens. So a bottom bracket that's brand new like a bottom bracket that's been ridden for a couple of months will probably spin smoother than one that's brand new like you'll get a couple more rotations out of the crank but it shouldn't make any noise at all from new like no. that's and, that's and, not a thing and it shouldn't require like like tangible substantial effort to turn the thing like that's no, just absolutely not, not right no Something's you should still right. be able to yeah. spin the crank yeah yes so it should normally go from like smooth to smoother yeah not necessarily barely functioning to functioning yeah, I mean, particularly I would say too, to like go. with GXP, I see a lot of people mess up spacers on them. So like, that's probably what's going on mm -hmm. in terms of it not spinning. The creaking, that's like probably too, something too else, much but... preload on the bearing with too many spaces. Yeah. 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 And then maybe by tightening it all the way uh, with too many spacers that you've sort of overdone the bearings in terms of preload. Now they're broken. They're yeah. I'd be curious. <laughs> so like, on the drive side on a GXP, press fit like on this frame there should be a wavy washer in between the crank and the bottom bracket and i'd be really curious if that is there and you can see it or if there's a bunch of other washers shoved in there and that washer is just like fully flattened yeah either way there's there's definitely a bunch of different ways this could have gone wrong and it sounds like one of those things went wrong so <laughs> or uh, more yeah or more or more but either way uh mark that is definitely not correct take the thing back um all right, this is an interesting one. This one comes from uh, Discord user Lugs585. I'm guessing they have a look. Um, 
Anyway, they uh, recently went to service their partner's Time Fluidity headset bearings. They were astounded to see that the bearings were not a classic metal or plastic cage uh, containing the individual ball, ball bearings. But instead the, in, instead, the ball bearings were set in a thin silicone ring, which makes them fixed and unable to roll individually. The bearing still functions, and the time quick set adjustment is fantastic. But they can't help but imagine that these fixed balls are just wearing a track in the races. Has anyone come across this type before? Um, I'm, I'm going to guess that this person hasn't really looked inside of a whole bunch of modern bearings in a while because it's it's actually very, very common now. It, it's it's certainly more common than not, I would say, for a cartridge bearing to have the bearing balls encased in some sort of some sort of uh, like oftentimes a plastic ring like that. Uh, it keeps the bearings spaced apart from each other and it keeps the bearings themselves from counter rotating against each other, which is a big source of wear. Um, so unless something is not rotating well or is seized or something like that, I think what you're looking at is totally, totally normal, actually. Uh, anyone else have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean that's what kind of what it sounds like. I mean, like even like ceramic speeds new, new bearing is that, but like to the extreme, right? Like it's meant to fill all the space so that there's no dirt or anything that can get in. But like under load, those bearing, ball bearings still spin. Yeah, I was imagining it was a scenario more like the new ceramic speed solid state bearing, where they don't feel you can't necessarily with your finger turn the ball, but when right. they're under load, they do turn and they do feel a little stiffer or like more resistant than your conventional ball bearing. But that's kind of by design in a certain way. Um, so I'm imagining it's more like a scenario like that rather than like a plastic cage holding the individual balls in place. Yeah. I don't think they, I mean, this is on a, on an older bike, uh, if yeah. I remember correctly. And uh, I don't think. I mean, Time definitely did like interesting things with their headset. They did, but not so much with the bearings themselves, though, because that the quick set adjustment thing is like this threaded. Uh, yeah. If I remember, yeah, right. there's one right. Yeah, this right. There's one right there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as the case may be, with lots of Time logos on it. Um, but yeah, it, it does sound like it's just sort of how uh, you're just looking at the inside of a of a of a newer high end bearing, and it doesn't sound like there's anything wrong wrong with it at all, especially if it's working properly. Yeah. Um, all right, let's uh, let's finish up with the last couple of questions here, and then we'll wrap it up because we're kind of we're kind of at the hour mark here. Um, this one comes from Edson. Uh, again, I don't have their their full name. Um, Edson has a set of Roval CLX fifty carbon wheels with S Works turbo tubeless tires. They seem to lose a lot of pressure during the days. And for example, when they ride to work, and after eight hours, they've got to pump them up again. It starts out at ninety psi and goes down forty psi or more. Uh, when they clean the bike or it rains. Uh, they're seeing it sweat a bit on the sidewalls. Uh, I don't know if this is the problem. Do we have any suggestions? And for clarification, he's using muck off or Edson, he or she or whatever. Uh, they're using muck off sealant. I would uh, start by not using that sealant. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. Me three. <laughs> yeah. But and then yeah. otherwise, there's like only so many variables, right? It's either the rim tape or the valve <laughs> interface on the rim. But it, it or sounds you have like really it's pretty old clear seeping through the sidewalls yeah. just based on what they're mm-hmm. seeing when they, when they wash it. That That's, sealant is kind of like a sludge that doesn't really do anything instead of like fill gaps and mm-hmm. seal things <laughs> in my experience. And it's just awful to clean out and do anything with. Yeah. Oof. All right. I, I haven't used but it smells, sealant, but it sounds like I don't know. It smells really like bubble to. gum. That's what their marketing is. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. That's a real bubble gum might work better. Yeah. Ooh, <laughs> ouch. Sorry. Um, no. I would say like orange seal would be a really good sealant to test here because orange seal basically like creates this um this like latex barrier you know it, it really sticks around the whole tire and it, it creates this uh this true light like airtight liner to most tires so that's where i would probably go and, and try before you start swapping tires and all that um but yeah you'd want to get the muck off sealant out of there before you went to orange seal I think was it Ronan? I feel like made a joke about muckoff products are made so they use other muckoff products to clean that first muckoff product. Maybe something <laughs> to that effect. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to add that uh, in my experience, particularly for tires that have been already been ridden a fair bit, like even with ones that are somewhat challenging to seal. Um, if you're using a good sealant, usually just the act of riding is enough to slosh the stuff around to kind of coat the inside of the casing, and you know you might lose a little bit of air on the first couple of rides or something, but eventually that stuff does slosh around enough to kind of get the whole inside of the carcass. Um, but if you have been riding those wheels and tires for a little bit of time now, and you're still having issues with the sidewalls not sealing, then yeah, that I agree with everyone else that it sounds like it's a sealant issue. So uh, 
switch. It it doesn't sound like this is the case, but I, I've definitely had it on older mountain bike tires where the sidewalls with age start seeping, where where like you get like sidewall wear basically. Oh and, no, these are pretty new. Yeah. yeah, but if it's a new tire, then I'd be looking to the sealant first and foremost. All right, let's let's wrap up this round of Ask Revenge with one last tire question. This one comes from my handle 1970 in the UK. I'm going to guess they were born in 1970. Uh, anyway, they have a 2016 Rose X-Lite CRS fitted with nominally 25 millimeter wide tires. What is the safe gap? What's the safe clearance needed around uh, before they tried to run 28 mil tires? Uh, they're thinking it might be too tight, but they're wondering what the general advice is before deciding whether to try something wider. Uh, this is a tricky question to answer, mainly because there is such – tire sizing as far as like printed size versus actual size is just the absolute wild west, especially if you're looking at you know, comparing things that are a few years old with stuff that's new. Um, that printed tire size is supposed to be what the actual inflated width is on uh, what they call a reference rim. Um, back then, if you have that 25 mil tire, it probably was 25 mil on a quite narrow rim, uh, assuming you're not changing the, the rims that you have right now, nearly anything else that you run that you can buy nowadays will probably be designed around a wider reference rim and will be quite a bit bigger than, uh, than what you have right now. Um, so there might be some, there might be some trial and error required here, but anyway, uh, Manufacturers on the road bike, uh, road bikes anyway, they usually recommend uh, for their maximum recommended tire clearances. They say that you have to have a minimum of four mils, four millimeters of clearance at any point anywhere in the frame or fork. Um, I mean, you could go tighter than that, but I don't generally recommend it, um, especially if you're going to ride in the wet or mud or anything like that. Um, you know, one a wheel that goes out of, out of true or a broken spoke or anything, you can easily actually wear a hole in your frame uh day it looks like you have something to add here yeah like just like it, it there's so many variables here like you know even uh the stiffness of your wheel or the stiffness of your frame can can have a huge impact on the amount of clearance you can get away with uh and then on top of that like if you are constantly riding in the wet which you probably are given your location uh it's uh like you know the the amount of grit that you pick up is also needs to be factored in so i'd want more clearance uh yeah for if i was riding in poor weather with you know grit and gravel around um yeah you'd want to probably err on the side of that that four millimeter uh clearance that iso clearance um rather than tighten up that gap any further i would also say just keep an eye to a wider tire is also a taller tire and you may run into brake caliper clearance if you're uh i believe i'm not sure you said it was a rose frame if that's, mm-hmm. a, if from, that's a if that's a yep from 2016 yeah, so if that's still, I presume that's probably a rim brake bike, and therefore um, also take an eye uh, and just look at that gap too, because you'll gain at least as much, you know, width as you would height, and therefore I've I've seen more clearance issues with brake calipers maybe than I have with frames in a scenario like this where it's a close call. Yeah, um, James, you did mention before that like the the reference rim and that things will be wider um i guess just to clarify like because the reference rims are wider the the tires themselves if you put them on a narrower rim the the latest tires will actually probably end oh, up sorry being, yes they'll measure being, smaller excuse me being, yeah they'll Correct. be smaller sorry, so yeah um so like continental for example like their latest 28s are, are narrower than their their older 28 mil tires uh given the same rim so uh yeah that's that's probably perhaps could be done to your advantage if your rims are narrow you could use a 28 mil and it'll probably measure like 26 or 27 mil on an hour rim so either way certainly some trial and error will be required here yes. um maybe you will find an accommodating shop that will let you try some of those things to see what'll work but um yeah unfortunately there's not gonna be like a surefire solution or answer as far as what will fit and what won't but yeah measure those clearances pretty pretty carefully in your frame and gauge carefully how much risk you're willing to run there for the tip uh allen key is a pretty good measurement guide because um, you that's can a good one. Yeah, smart. They're, they're much easier to get into tight spots than like a, a caliper and you can you've got a full size range of them and you can just slip them in and see how much room you got oh handy tip handy tip all right i think uh let's go ahead and wrap up there because I, I like finishing on that note there so uh, we are kind of out of time anyway for this special ask a wrench episode of geek warning uh as always thank you so much for listening if you like what you heard today please 
please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review so more people can geek out with us here. Uh, and again, if you're not a member of Escape Collective yet, I mean, what are you waiting for? I mean, seriously. So the show is over now. Head over to escapecollective.com slash join and sign up. Uh, we do have subscriptions starting at just seven bucks US a month, which I, I, granted, I'm a little biased. I think it's a tiny, tiny, tiny price to pay so you don't feel guilty about consuming this wonderful, joyous, gleeful podcast every week. Easy for you to say. You haven't paid, James. Neither of you. <laughs> That's true. Guilty. Oh, but, da- Guilty. but Dave, we have paid in different ways. This is true. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> the perk of the job, anyway, we get a subscription. Exactly. <laughs> well, thanks again, and we'll see you next time. And we'll have to make sure we do another Ask a Wrench episode sooner than later. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, truthfully, to, to tease it out a little bit, I think there's plans to do this on a, a very regular basis uh, and uh, potentially even in addition to the, the regular weekly show. So uh, we'll, see, we'll see how those plans end up. No promises, but that's, that's where we're headed. So There you go. There you go. So, so then you'll be getting even more for your money. You see, how's that for me piling on? See, I was, I was raised by Asian parents. Can you tell? Anyway, thanks again. We will see you next week. Yeah. Bye.